Sections 1 to 8 of Chapter 8 of Principles of Economics, Book 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. Principles of Economics, Book 6 by Alfred Marshall. Chapter 8 Progress in Relation to Standards of Life. Section 1. Let us begin by pursuing a little further the line of thought on which we started in Book 3, when considering wants in relation to activities. We there saw reasons for thinking that the true keynote of economic progress is the development of new activities rather than of new wants, and we may now make some study of a question that is of special urgency in our own generation, viz., what is the connection between changes in the manner of living and the rate of earnings? How far is either to be regarded as the cause of the other, and how far is the effect? The term, the standard of life, is here taken to mean the standard of activities adjusted to wants. Thus, a rise in the standard of life implies an increase of intelligence and energy and self-respect, leading to more care and judgment in expenditure, and to an avoidance of food and drink that gratify the appetite but afford no strength, and of ways of living that are unwholesome physically and morally. A rise in the standard of life for the whole population will much increase the national dividend, and the share of it which accrues to each grade and to each trade. A rise in the standard of life for any one trade or grade will raise their efficiency, and therefore their own real wages. It will increase the national dividend a little, and it will enable others to obtain their assistance at a cost somewhat less in proportion to its efficiency. But many writers have spoken of the influence exerted on wages by a rise not in the standard of life, but in that of comfort, a term that may suggest a mere increase of artificial wants, among which perhaps the grosser wants may predominate. It is true that every broad improvement in the standard of comfort is likely to bring with it a better manner of living, and to open the way to new and higher activities, while people who have hitherto had neither the necessaries nor the decencies of life can hardly fail to get some increase of vitality and energy from an increase of comfort, however gross and material the view which they may take of it. Thus, a rise in the standard of comfort will probably involve some rise in the standard of life, and, in so far as this is the case, it tends to increase the national dividend and to improve the condition of the people. Some writers, however, of our own and of earlier times, have gone further than this, and have implied that a mere increase of wants tends to raise wages but the only direct effect of an increase of wants is to make people more miserable than before. And if we put aside its possible indirect effect in increasing activities and otherwise raising the standard of life, it can raise wages only by diminishing the supply of labour. It will be well to go into this matter more closely. Section 2 it has already been noted that if population increased in high geometrical progression uninterruptedly for many generations together in a country which could not import food easily, then the total produce of labour and capital, working on the resources provided by nature, 
would barely cover the cost of rearing and training each generation as it came. This would be true even if we supposed that nearly the whole of the national dividend went to labour, scarcely any share being allotted to capitalist or landowner. If the allowance fell below that level, the rate of increase of the population must necessarily shrink, unless, indeed, the expenses of their nurture and rearing were curtailed, with a resulting lowering of efficiency, and therefore of the national dividend, and therefore of earnings. But in fact, the check to the rapid growth of population would probably come earlier, because the population at large would not be likely to limit its consumption to bare necessaries. Some part of the family income would almost certainly be spent on gratifications which contributed but little to the maintenance of life and efficiency. That is to say, the maintenance of a standard of comfort, raised more or less above that which was necessary for life and efficiency, would necessarily involve a check to the growth of population at a rather earlier stage than would have been reached if family expenditure had been directed on the same principles as is the expenditure on the nurture and training of horses or slaves. This analogy reaches further. Three necessaries for full efficiency, hope, freedom and change, cannot easily be brought within the slave's reach. But as a rule, the shrewd slave-owner goes to some trouble and expense to promote rough musical and other entertainments, on the same principle that he provides medicines. For experience shows that melancholy in a slave is as wasteful as disease, or as cinders that clog the furnace of a boiler. Now if the standard of comfort of the slaves were to rise in such a way that neither punishment nor the fear of death would make them work, unless provided with expensive comforts and even luxuries, they would get those comforts and luxuries, or else they would disappear, in the same way as would a breed of horses that did not earn their keep. And if it were true that the real wages of labour were forced down chiefly by the difficulty of obtaining food, as was in fact the case in England a hundred years ago, then indeed the working classes might relieve themselves from the pressure of diminishing return by reducing their numbers but they cannot do so now, because there is no such pressure. The opening of England's ports, in 1846, was one among many causes of the development of railways connecting the vast agricultural lands of North and South America and Australia with the sea. Wheat grown under the most advantageous circumstances is brought to the English working man in sufficient quantities for his family at a total cost equal to but a small part of his wages. An increase in numbers gives many new opportunities for increased efficiency of labour and capital working together to meet men's wants, and thus may raise wages in one direction as much as it lowers them in another, provided only the stock of capital required for the new developments increases fast enough. Of course, the Englishman is not unaffected by the law of diminishing return, he cannot earn his food with as little labour as if he were near spacious virgin prairies. But its cost to him, being now governed mainly by the supplies which come from new countries, would not be greatly affected either by an increase or by a diminution in the population of this country. If he can make his labour more efficient in producing things which can be exchanged for imported food, then he will get his food at less real cost to himself, whether the population of England grows fast or not. 
When the wheat fields of the world are worked at their full power, or even earlier if the free entry of food into England's ports should ever be obstructed, then indeed an increase of her population may lower wages, or at all events check the rise that would otherwise have come from the continued improvement in the arts of production, and, in such a case, a rise in the standard of comfort may raise wages merely by stinting the growth of numbers. But while the present good fortune of abundant imported food attends on the English people, a rise in their standard of comfort could not increase their wages merely by its action on their numbers. And further, if it were obtained by measures which forced down the rate of profits on capital even further below the level which can be got in countries which have a greater power of absorbing capital than England has, it might both check accumulation in England and hasten the exportation of capital. And in that case, wages in England would fall both absolutely and relatively to the rest of the world. If, on the other hand, a rise in the standard of comfort went together with a great increase in efficiency, then, whether it were accompanied by an increase in numbers or not, it would enlarge the national dividend relatively to population, and establish a rise of real wages on an enduring basis. Thus a diminution by one-tenth of the number of workers, each doing as much work as before, would not materially raise wages and therefore a diminution by one-tenth in the amount of work done by each, the number remaining unchanged, would lower wages in general by one-tenth. This argument is of course consistent with the belief that a compact group of workers can for a time raise their wages at the expense of the rest of the community by making their labour scarce. But such strategy seldom succeeds for more than a short time. However strong the antisocial obstacles which they erect against those who would like a share of their gains, interlopers find their way in, some over the obstacles, some under them, and some through them. Meanwhile, invention is set on foot to obtain in some other way, or from some other place, things of the production of which the compact group thought to have a partial monopoly. And, what is even more dangerous to them, New things are invented and brought into general use, which satisfy nearly the same wants, and yet make no use of their labour. Thus after a while, those who have striven to make a shrewd use of the monopoly are apt to find their numbers swollen rather than reduced, while the total demand for their labour has shrunk. In that case, their wages fall heavily. Section 3 the relations between industrial efficiency and the hours of labour are complex. If the strain is very great, a man is apt to be so tired by long work that he is seldom at his best, and is often much below it, or even idling. As a general, though not a universal rule, his work is more intense when paid by peace than when paid by time, and in so far as this is the case, Short hours are specially suitable to industries in which piecework prevails. Footnote. The facts are much in question, partly because they vary much from one industry to another, and those who have the most intimate knowledge of them are apt to be biased. When piecework can be brought under collective bargaining by trade unions, the first effect of an improvement in plant is to raise real wages, 
and the onus of claiming a readjustment of peace rates in order to keep wages in just proportion to those which are being earned by equally difficult and responsible work in other occupations is thus thrown upon the employers. In such cases, peace work is generally in favour with employees. And where their organisation is good, as in some classes of mining work, they approve it even in regard to work that is not uniform. But in many other cases it arouses their suspicion of unfair advantage. See below in section 8. According to Professor Schmoller, it is estimated that piecework increases output by 20 to 100 per cent, according to the race of the workers and the character and technique of the industry. An instructive detailed statement of the causes which lead workers generally to oppose payment by results in certain industries, while welcoming it in others, is given by Cole, The Payment of Wages, Chapter 2. End of footnote. When the hours, the nature of the work done, the physical conditions under which it is done, and the method by which it is remunerated, are such as to cause great wear and tear of body or mind or both, and to lead to a low standard of living, when there has been a want of that leisure, rest and repose, which are among the necessaries for efficiency, then the labour has been extravagant from the point of view of society at large, just as it would be extravagant on the part of the individual capitalist to keep his horses or slaves overworked or underfed. In such a case, a moderate diminution of the hours of labour would diminish the national dividend only temporarily, for as soon as the improved standard of life had had time to exert its full effect on the efficiency of the workers, their increased energy, intelligence, and force of character would enable them to do as much as before in less time, and thus, even from the point of view of material production, there would be no ultimate loss, any more than there would be in sending a sick worker into hospital to get his strength renovated. The coming generation is interested in the rescue of men, and still more in that of women, from excessive work, at least as much as it is in the handing down to it of a good stock of material wealth. This argument assumes that the new rest and leisure raise the standard of life, and such a result is almost certain to follow in the extreme cases of overwork which we have been now considering, for in them a mere lessening of tension is a necessary condition for taking the first step upwards. The lowest grade of honest workers seldom work very hard, but they have little stamina, and many of them are so overstrained that they might probably, after a time, do as much in a shorter day as they do now in a long one. Footnote. The history of British industries offers the most various, the most clearly defined, and the most generally instructive experiments as to the influence of variations in the hours of labour on output, but international studies on the subject seem to be specially German. For instance, see Bernard, Herr Herre Arbeitsintensität bei Kurzeren Arbeitszeit, 1909. End of footnote. Again, there are some branches of industry which at present turn to account expensive plant during nine or ten hours a day, and in which the gradual introduction of two shifts of eight hours, or even less, would be a gain. The change would need to be introduced gradually, for there is not enough skilled labour in existence to allow such a plan to be adopted at once in all the workshops and factories for which it is suited. 
but some kinds of machinery, when worn out or antiquated, might be replaced on a smaller scale, and on the other hand, much new machinery that cannot be profitably introduced for a ten-hours day, would be introduced for a sixteen-hours day, and when once introduced it would be improved on. Thus the arts of production would progress more rapidly, the national dividend would increase, working men would be able to earn higher wages without checking the growth of capital, or tempting it to migrate to countries where wages are lower, and all classes of society would reap benefit from the change. The importance of this consideration is more apparent every year, since the growing expensiveness of machinery, and the quickness with which it is rendered obsolete, are constantly increasing the wastefulness of keeping the untiring iron and steel resting in idleness during sixteen hours out of the twenty-four. In any country, such a change would increase the net produce, and therefore the wages of each worker, because much less than before would have to be deducted from his total output on account of charges for machinery, plant, factory rent, etc. But Anglo-Saxon artisans, unsurpassed in accuracy of touch, and surpassing all in sustained energy, would more than any others increase their net produce, if they would keep their machinery going at its full speed for sixteen hours a day, even though they themselves worked only eight. Footnote. On the whole of this subject, see Professor Chapman's address at the British Association, 1909, published in the Economic Journal, Volume 19. Double shifts are used more on the continent than in England, but they have not a fair trial there, for the hours of labour are so long that double shifts involve work nearly all the night through, and night work is never so good as day work, partly because those who work at night do not rest perfectly during the day. No doubt certain practical objections can be urged against the plan. For instance, a machine is not so well cared for when two men share the responsibility of keeping it in order, as when one man has the whole management of it. And there is sometimes a difficulty about fixing responsibility for imperfections in the work done. But these difficulties can be in a great measure overcome by putting the machine and the work in charge of two partners. Again, there would be a little difficulty in readjusting the office arrangements to suit a day of sixteen hours. But employers and their foremen do not regard these difficulties as insuperable, and experience shows that workmen soon overcome the repugnance which they feel at first to double shifts. One set might end its work at noon, and the other begin then, or what would perhaps be better, one shift might work, say, from 5am to 10am, and from 1.30pm to 4.30pm, the second set working from 10.15am to 1.15pm, and from 4.45pm to 9.45pm. The two sets might change places at the end of each week or month. A general adoption of double shifts will be necessary if the extension of the marvellous powers of expensive machinery into every branch of manual work is to exercise the full influence of which it is capable in reducing the hours of labour much below eight. End of footnote. It must, however, be remembered that this particular plea for a reduction of the hours of labour applies only to those trades which use, or can use, expensive plant, and that in many cases, as for instance in some mines and some branches of railway work, 
The system of shifts is already applied so as to keep the plant almost constantly at work. There remain, therefore, many trades in which a reduction of the hours of labour would certainly lessen the output in the immediate present, and would not certainly bring about at all quickly any such increase of efficiency as would raise the average work done per head up to the old level. In such cases the change would diminish the national dividend, and the greater part of the resulting material loss would fall on the workers whose hours of labour were diminished. It is true that in some trades a scarcity of labour would raise its price for a good long while, at the expense of the rest of the community. But as a rule, a rise in the real price of labour would cause a diminished demand for the product, partly through the increased use of substitutes, and would also cause an inrush of new labour from less favoured trades. Section 4 it may be well to try to explain the great vitality of the common belief that wages could be raised generally by merely making labour scarce. To begin with, it is difficult to realise how different, and often even opposed, are the immediate and permanent effects of a change. People see that, when there are competent men waiting for work outside the offices of a tramway company, those already at work think more of keeping their posts than of striving for a rise of wages, and that if these men were away, the employers could not resist a demand for higher wages. They dwell on the fact that, if tramway men work short hours, and there is no diminution in the number of miles run by the cars on existing lines, then more men must be employed, probably at higher wages per hour, and possibly at higher wages per day. They see that, when an enterprise is on foot, as for instance the building of a house or a ship, it must be finished at any cost, since there is nothing to be gained by stopping halfway. And the larger the slices of work on it done by any one man, the fewer slices of work on it will be left for other people. But there are other consequences, more important, though less obtrusive, which need to be considered. For instance, if tram workers and building operatives stint their labour artificially, tramway extensions will be checked. Fewer men will be employed in making and working tramways. Many workpeople and others will walk into town who might have ridden. Many will live closely packed in the cities who might have had gardens and fresher air in the suburbs. The working classes, among others, will be unable to pay for as good housing accommodation as they would otherwise have had, and there will be less building to be done. In short, the argument that wages can be raised permanently by stinting labour rests on the assumption that there is a permanent fixed work fund, i.e. a certain amount of work which has to be done, whatever the price of labour. And for this assumption there is no foundation. On the contrary, the demand for work comes from the national dividend, that is, it comes from work. The less work there is of one kind, the less demand there is for work of other kinds. And if labour were scarce, fewer enterprises would be undertaken. Again, constancy of employment is dependent on the organisation of industry and trade, and on the success with which those who arrange supply are able to forecast coming movements of demand and of price, and to adjust their actions accordingly. But this would not be better done with a short day's work than with a long one. 
and indeed the adoption of a short day, not accompanied by double shifts, would discourage the use of that expensive plant, the presence of which makes employers very unwilling to close their works. Almost every artificial stinting of work involves friction, and therefore tends not to lessen, but to increase the inconstancy of employment. It is true that, if plasterers or shoemakers could exclude external competition, they would have a fair chance of raising their wages by a mere diminution of the amount of work done by each, whether by shortening the hours of labour or in any other way. But these gains can be got only at the expense of a greater aggregate loss to other sharers in the national dividend, which is the source of wages and profits in all industries in the country. This conclusion is emphasised by the fact, to which experience testifies and which analysis explains, that the strongest instances of a rise in wages attained by trade union strategy are found in branches of industry, the demand for whose labour is not direct, but derived from the demand for a product in making which many branches of industry cooperate. For any one branch, which is strong in strategy, can absorb to itself some share of the price of the ultimate product, which might have gone to other branches. Section 5 we now come to a second cause of the vitality of the belief that wages can be raised generally and permanently by checking the supply of labour. This cause is an underestimate of the effects of such a change on the supply of capital. It is a fact, and so far as it goes an important fact, that some share of the loss resulting from the lessening of output by, say, plasterers or shoemakers, will fall on those who do not belong to the working classes. Part of it will no doubt fall on employers and capitalists whose personal and material capital is sunk in building or shoemaking, and part on well-to-do users or consumers of houses or shoes. And further, if there were a general attempt by all of the working classes to obtain high wages by restricting the effective supply of their labour, a considerable part of the burden resulting from the shrinkage of the national dividend would doubtless be thrown on other classes of the nation, and especially on the capitalists, for a time, but only for a time. For a considerable diminution in the net return to investments of capital would speedily drive new supplies of it abroad. In regard to this danger, it is indeed sometimes urged that the railways and factories of the country cannot be exported. But nearly all of the materials and a large part of the appliances of production are consumed or worn out, or it becomes obsolete every year and they need to be replaced. And a reduction in the scale of this replacement, combined with the exportation of some of the capital thus set free, might probably so lessen the effective demand for labour in the country in a few years, that in reaction wages generally would be reduced much below their present level. Footnote. To take an illustration, let us suppose that shoemakers and hatters are in the same grade, working equal hours and receiving equal wages, before and after a general reduction in the hours of labour. Then both before and after the change, the hatter could buy, with a month's wages, as many shoes as were the net product of the shoemaker's work for a month. If the shoemaker worked less hours than before, and in consequence did less work, 
the net product of his labour for a month would have diminished, unless, either by a system of working double shifts, the employer and his capital earned profits on two sets of workers, or his profits could be cut down by the full amount of the diminution in output. The last supposition is inconsistent with what we know of the causes which govern the supply of capital and business power, and therefore the hatter's wages would go less far than before in buying shoes, and so all round for other trades. End of footnote. But though the emigration of capital would not in any case be attended by much difficulty, owners of capital have good business reasons as well as a sentimental preference in favour of investing it at home. And therefore a rise in the standard of life, which makes a country more attractive to live in, is sure to counteract to some extent the tendency of a fall in the net return on investments to cause capital to be exported. On the other hand, an attempt to raise wages by antisocial contrivances for stinting output is certain to drive abroad well-to-do people in general, and especially just that class of capitalists whose enterprise and delight in conquering difficulties is of the most importance to the working classes. For their ceaseless initiative makes for national leadership and enables man's work to raise real wages while promoting an increased supply of those appliances which make for efficiency, and thus sustain the growth of the national dividend. It is true also that a general rise in wages, however attained, if spread over the whole world, could not cause capital to migrate from any one part of it to another. And it is to be hoped that in time the wages of manual labour will rise all over the world, mainly through increased production, but partly also in consequence of a general fall in the rate of interest, and of a relative, if not absolute, diminution of incomes larger than are necessary to supply the means of efficient work and culture, even in the highest and broadest senses of these terms. But methods of raising wages, which make for a higher standard of comfort by means that lessen rather than promote efficiency, are so antisocial and short-sighted as to invoke a speedy retribution, and there is perhaps little chance of their being adopted over any great part of the world. If several countries adopted such methods, the others going straight for raising the standards of life and of efficiency would speedily attract to themselves much of the capital and of the best vital force away from those who followed an ignoble restrictive policy. Section 6 In this discussion, it has been necessary to adhere to general reasoning, for a direct appeal to experience is difficult, and if made lightly it can but mislead. Whether we watch the statistics of wages and production immediately after the change, or for a long period following it, the prominent facts are likely to be due chiefly to causes other than that which we are wishing to study. Thus, if a reduction of hours resulted from a successful strike, the chances are that the occasion chosen for the strike was one when the strategical position of the workmen was good, and when the general conditions of trade would have enabled them to obtain a rise of wages if there had been no change in the hours of labour. And therefore, the immediate effects of the change on wages are likely to appear more favourable than they really were. And again, Many employers, having entered into contracts which they are bound to fulfil, 
may for the time offer higher wages for a short day than before for a long day. But this is a result of the suddenness of the change, and is a mere flash in the pan. And as has just been observed, the immediate results of such a change are likely to be in the opposite direction to those which follow later, and are more enduring. On the other hand, if men have been overworked, the shortening of the hours of labour will not at once make them strong. The physical and moral improvement of the condition of the workers, with its consequent increase of efficiency, and therefore of wages, cannot show itself at once. Further, the statistics of production and wages several years after the reduction of hours are likely to reflect changes in the prosperity of the country, and especially of the trade in question, of the methods of production, and of the purchasing power of money. And it may be as difficult to isolate the effects of reduction of the hours of labour as it is to isolate the effects on the waves of a noisy sea caused by throwing a stone among them. Footnote. For instance, when we look at the history of the introduction of the eight-hours day in Australia, we find great fluctuations in the prosperity of the mines and the supply of gold, in the prosperity of the sheep farms and the price of wool in the borrowing from old countries' capital with which to employ Australian labour to build railways, etc., in immigration and in commercial credit. And all these have been such powerful causes of change in the condition of the Australian working man as to completely overlay and hide from view the effects of a reduction of the hours of labour from ten gross, eight and three-quarter net after deducting mealtimes, to eight net. Money wages in Australia are much lower than they were before the hours were shortened, and though it may be true that the purchasing power of money has increased, so that real wages have not fallen, yet there seems no doubt that the real wages of labour in Australia are not nearly as much above those in England as they were before the reduction in the hours of labour and it has not been proved that they are not lower than they would have been if that change had not taken place. The commercial troubles through which Australia passed shortly after the change were no doubt mainly caused by a series of droughts supervening on a reckless inflation of credit. But a contributory cause appears to have been an over-sanguine estimate of the economic efficiency of short hours of labour, which led to a premature reduction of hours in industries not well adapted for it. End of footnote. We must, then, be careful not to confuse the two questions, whether a cause tends to produce a certain effect, and whether that cause is sure to be followed by that effect. Opening the sluice of a reservoir tends to lower the level of the water in it. But if, meanwhile, larger supplies of water are flowing in at the other end, the opening of the sluice may be followed by a rising of the level of the water in the cistern. And so, although a shortening of the hours of labour would tend to diminish output in those trades which are not overworked, and in which there is no room for double shifts, yet it might very likely be accompanied by an increase of production arising from the general progress of wealth and knowledge. But in that case, the rise of wages would have been obtained in spite of, and not in consequence of, a shortening of hours. Section 7 in more modern England, nearly all movements of the kind which we have just been discussing are directed by trade unions. 
A full appreciation of their aims and results lies beyond the scope of the present volume, for it must be based on a study of combinations in general, of industrial fluctuations, and of foreign trade. But a few words may be said here on that part of their policy which is most closely connected with standards of life, and work, and wages. Footnote. A short provisional description of trade unions is affixed to Volume 1 of my Elements of Economics, which is in other respects an abridgment of the present volume. And the account of their aims and methods given in the final report of the Labour Commission, 1893, has the unique authority derived from the cooperation of employers and trade union leaders of exceptional ability and experience. End of footnote. The increasing changefulness and mobility of industry obscure the influences, both for good and for evil, which the earnings and industrial policy of any group of workers in one generation exert on the efficiency and earning power of the same group in a later generation. The family income, from which the expenses of rearing and training its younger members must be defrayed, seldom comes now from a single trade. The sons are less frequently found in their father's occupation. The stronger and more strenuous of those to whose nurture the earnings of any occupation have contributed are likely to seek higher fortunes elsewhere, while the weak and the dissolute are likely to descend below it. It is therefore becoming increasingly difficult to bring the test of experience to bear on the question whether the efforts which any particular trade union has made to raise the wages of its members have borne rich fruit in raising the standard of life and work of the generation reared by aid of those high wages. But some broad facts stand out clearly. The original aims of British trade unions were almost as closely connected with the standard of life as with the rate of wages. They derived their first great impulse from the fact that the law partly directly and partly indirectly, sustained combinations among employers to regulate wages in their own supposed interest, and prohibited, under severe penalties, similar combinations on the part of employees. This law depressed wages a little, but it depressed much more the strength and richness of character of the workman. His horizon was generally so limited that he could not be fully drawn out of himself by a keen and intelligent interest in national affairs, so he thought and cared little about any mundane matters except the immediate concerns of himself, his family and his neighbours. Freedom to combine with others in his own occupation would have widened his horizon and given him larger matters to think about. It would have raised his standard of social duty, even though this duty might have been tainted with a good deal of class selfishness. Thus the early struggle for the principle that workmen should be free to do in combination, the counterpart of anything which employers were free to do in combination, was in effect an effort to obtain conditions of life consistent with true self-respect and broad social interests, as much as a struggle for higher wages. On this side of the field, victory has been complete. Trade unionism has enabled skilled artisans, and even many classes of unskilled workers, to enter into negotiations with their employers 
with the same gravity, self-restraint, dignity, and forethought, as are observed in the diplomacy of great nations. It has led them generally to recognise that a simply aggressive policy is a foolish policy, and that the chief use of military resources is to preserve an advantageous peace. In many British industries, boards for the adjustment of wages work steadily and smoothly because there is a strong desire to avoid waste of energy on trifles. If an employee disputes the justice of any judgment passed by his employer or foreman on his work or his remuneration for it, the employer in the first instance calls in the trade union secretary as arbiter. His verdict is generally accepted by the employer, and of course it must be accepted by the operative. If beneath this particular personal dispute there is a question of principle on which no clear agreement has been reached by the board, the matter may be referred for discussion to the secretaries of the Employers Association and the Trade Union in conference. If they cannot agree, it may be passed on to the board. At last, if the stake at issue is large enough, and neither side will give way, the issue is relegated by strike or a lockout to the decision of force. But even then, the good services of several generations of organised trade unions are seen in the conduct of the contest, which generally differs in method from the contest waged between employers and employed a century ago, very much as honourable war between modern civilised peoples does from fierce guerrilla war among wild peoples. Self-control and moderation of manner overlying resolute purpose distinguished the British delegates above others at an international labour conference. But the very greatness of the services which trade unions have rendered imposes on them corresponding obligations. Noblesse oblige, and they are bound to look with suspicion on those who exaggerate their power of raising wages by particular devices, especially when such devices contain an antisocial element. There are indeed but few movements which are without reproach. Some destructive influence lurks in nearly every great and good effort, but the evil should be stripped of all gloss and carefully examined so that it may be kept down. Section 8 the chief instrument by which trade unions have obtained their power of negotiating on even terms with their employers is a common rule as regards the standard wage to be paid for an hour's work of a given class, or again for piecework of a given class. Custom, and the rather ineffective assessments of wages by justices of the peace, while hindering the workman from rising, had also defended him from extreme pressure. But, when competition became free, the isolated workman was at a disadvantage in bargaining with employers. For even in Adam Smith's time, they were generally in agreement, formal or informal, not to outbid one another in the hire of labour. And when, as time went on, a single firm was often able to employ several thousands of workmen, that firm by itself became a larger as well as a more compact bargaining force than a small trade union. It is true that the agreements and understandings of employers not to overbid one another were not universal, and were often evaded or broken. It is true that when the net product due to the labour of additional workers was largely in excess of the wages that were being paid to them, 
a pushing employer would brave the indignation of his peers, and attract workers to him by the offer of higher wages, and it is true that in progressive industrial districts this competition was sufficient to secure that no considerable body of workers should remain for long with wages much below the equivalent of their net product. It is necessary to reassert here the fact that this net product, to which the wages of a worker of normal efficiency approximate, is the net product of a worker of normal efficiency. For a suggestion has indeed been made by some advocates of extreme enforcements of the common rule, that competition tends to make the wages of the efficient worker equal to the net product of that worker who is so inefficient that the employer can barely be induced to employ him at all. Footnote. The wholesome influences on social well-being, which are exercised by trade union leaders in many directions, are apt to be marred by a misunderstanding on this matter. They commonly give as their authority the very weighty and able treatise on industrial democracy by Mr. and Mrs. Webb, where the misunderstanding is suggested. Thus they say, on page 710, It is now theoretically demonstrated, as we saw in our chapter on the verdict of the economists, that under perfect competition, and complete mobility between one occupation and another, the common level of wages tends to be no more than the net produce due to the labour of the marginal labourer, who is on the verge of not being employed at all. And, in a footnote on page 787, they refer to this marginal labourer as an industrial invalid or pauper, saying, if the wages of every class of labour under perfect competition tend to be no more than the net produce due to the additional labour of the marginal labourer of that class, who is on the verge of not being employed at all, the abstraction of the paupers, not necessarily from productive labour for themselves, but from the competitive labour market, by raising the capacity of the marginal wage labourer, would seem to increase the wages of the entire labouring class. End of footnote. But in fact competition does not act in this way. It does not tend to make weekly wages in similar employments equal. It tends to adjust them to the efficiency of the workers. If A will do twice as much work as B, an employer on the margin of doubt as to whether it is worth his while to take on additional workers will make just as good a bargain by taking on A at four shillings as by taking on B and another at two shillings each and the causes which govern wages are indicated as clearly by watching the marginal case of A at four shillings as that of B at two. Footnote. It is really an understatement to say that competition tends to make the employer willing to pay twice as high wages to A as to B under these conditions. For an efficient worker who will make the same factory space and plant and supervision serve for twice as much production as an inefficient worker is worth more than twice as much wages to the employer. He may really be worth three times as much. Of course, the employer may be afraid to offer to the more efficient worker wages proportionate to his true net product, lest inefficient workers supported by their unions, should overestimate his rate of profits and claim a rise in wages. But in this case, the cause which makes the employer pay attention to the net product of the less efficient worker, when considering how much it is worth his while to offer to the more efficient, 
is not free competition, but that resistance to free competition which is offered by the misapplication of the common rule. Some modern schemes for gain-sharing aim at raising the wages of efficient workers nearly in proportion to their true net product, that is, more in proportion to the piecework rate, but trade unions do not always favour such schemes. End of footnote. End of section 8 of chapter 8.